Hello, you're listening to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Joining us in conversation today from the pod at White City Place, Natalie Kane and Tobias Revel. The pair are co-founders of Haunted Machines, a curatorial and research project exploring narratives of myth and magic around technology. Haunted Machines participated in the Serpentine Gallery's 24-hour event on artificial intelligence, machines, and consciousness, called Guest, Host, Ghost, and most recently curated Impact Festival in 2017 in the Netherlands. Natalie is curator of digital design at the Victoria and Albert Museum. She's responsible for defining a new approach to collecting and exhibiting digital design for the museum, as well as taking on responsibility for the care, research, display, and interpretation of the museum's digital design collections. Tobias is an internationally exhibiting artist, course leader of the Masters of Interaction Design Communications at the London School of Communication, and a founding member of research consultancy Strange Telemetry. On the agenda, why we talk about technology in terms of magic and the occult, why we haven't shaken an industrial era understanding of machines, and the undeniable creepiness of Alexa. We've been going since about 2014, I think, when we started kind of thinking about it. And it kind of started as a kind of us seeing a lot of people, not just us, talking about technology and and of terms of magic and finding sort of similarities and weird things happening that they kind of found similar to what processes we find in magic. I guess the Haunted Machines Festival itself came as a result of Tobias being invited by Impact Festival to speak about Haunted Machines. Yeah, so it started really in Halloween 2014 and a well-known Internet of Things company had just shut down. We don't want to use names. (laughs) Um, And there was lots of questions about what would happen to the products. And this was kind of one of the first iterations of a company that produced devices to support your life in the home closing and therefore what happens to these devices and and this is where the idea of haunted machines came from these these devices that might provide you food or heat or water or ways to survive would suddenly stop supporting that and what would happen to these devices do they become haunted machines and so we started talking about this with ourselves and our network i suppose and found that there were lots of practitioners looking to magic and the occult as a way of thinking about the contemporary complex technological landscape, but also that it was an increasingly prevalent language within technology itself. And this goes back to the 19th century, goes back to the ancient Greeks. But today, for instance, you have Apple saying that their devices are practically magic. You have Nest saying the magic of home. On the way over, I saw an advert on the tube for Just Eat that says order food on your magic device or something like that. It's very mm. similar to that anyway. So, and this is this seems somewhat harmless and it seems like marketing language to a degree, which it is, but the fact that it's so prevalent and so deeply embedded in technological culture and the way technology is assimilated into pop culture was worthy of study. And so we investigated more. We did various projects along the way, various interviews. We did a podcast about alchemy, looking at that particular nuance of the area. Um, And then ultimately this culminated in the Impact Festival, which was 
at the end of October in Utrecht in the Netherlands. Maybe you want to talk a bit about Yeah, and we kind of, we split it up into three strands because we're kind of breaking it up can sometimes be quite good for, I guess, not just for us, but for people to kind of figure out what the different elements of this thing is. And it was split up into myth, magic and monsters. So myth is basically kind of the stories that we tell ourselves and how we start to kind of make sense of what's happening with technology. Magic is the spectacle. And like the kind of, again, the uh, the magic of the machine and the kind of the things that machines can do for us can be quite spectacular. And then you have monsters, which is basically when everything goes horribly wrong and kind of people get outed on Facebook and technology can't read kind of black identities and that kind of thing. And we sort of ended up pulling together a three-day conference and a three-week exhibition and two installations and a student exhibition as well and various other, and screening programme as well where we try to kind of use all of these different cultural sort of tools and metaphors to have a think about what this thing kind of really was. And we were very lucky we got a lot of incredibly smart people to come and think that through with us because we do see Haunted Machines as an ongoing research project. It wasn't kind of a final sort of nail on the coffin it was more like a this is an ongoing inquiry for us and it's you know that was a the festival was supposed to be a diagnostic mm. process in which we wanted to answer the question of why is there such a connection between the occult supernatural and technology certainly in the way we talk about it and how can that be used actively and in an emancipatory way by people, artists, whatever. So uh, the panels took two sides, you know, and the discussion took two sides and the artists we were looking at took two sides. Where does this come from? Why do we talk about things that way? And then also, how can that be used as a new way of dealing with contemporary technological culture? So, you know, the history of magic in Europe and the world, I think, to a degree, finds itself as an outsider knowledge structure, as a way of navigating, reading, understanding and interacting with the world that isn't based in a sort of Christian, Western, social democratic, rational science, but it's based in sort of folk knowledge and, and hidden and secret knowledge. The first witches were persecuted because they were women who fell outside of a patriarchy that believed in, in a rational science and Christianity and not in the folk remedies and, and methodologies that witches would often practice. And we came to the conclusion that I was asked a question during a Q&A during the festival, which was how... The stuff we were looking at in technological culture related to, for instance, um, teenagers trying to cast mm. curses on Donald Trump mm. on Snapchat. I told the story of uh, an old British technique for finding thieves, which was to put a saucepan upside down on a wooden spoon. So hold the wooden spoon vertically, if you can imagine that, and put the saucepan on top and spin the saucepan. And whichever way the handle of the saucepan faced and pointed was the person who was stealing from you. And this is a form of supernatural social mediation in, a, in the late and sort of early 16th century Britain where people had no faith or understanding of their institutions, where they couldn't trust the landed gentry or the royalty or the church, which was another kind of aristocratic construct that functioned in Latin and most people were illiterate. They couldn't trust any of these major institutions to deal with their lived experience and their problems. And so the only sense of power that was gained was through a belief in magic. And I think we're in a similar position today where I think it's undeniably true that trust in institutions is, is it at its lowest for the entire modern period in government, in universities, in corporations. And so people again are turning to whether they factually, categorically believe it or not, they're turning to other ways of exercising power, of expressing their voice, and that may be cursing Trump on Snapchat. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially kind of is a, an avenue for activism in many ways. And I mean, that again, as kind of Tobias mentioned, there's a rich history of using these alternate sites of knowledge and these quite seemingly illogical systems to work out stuff that, or to use it in a way to explain something that perhaps the dominant kind of or hegemonic kind of class aren't getting or aren't understanding. And I mean, I tell the story quite a lot, but the idea of the back in sort of the late 19th century, you had spiritualists and they were mostly women and often women. And you had half of them who would kind of try to take you for all your money and try and make you talk to your, your dead grandma and that kind of thing. But there was a small kind of portion of women who would channel the voices and the personalities of these famous kind of dead men. So Abraham Lincoln and say, oh, if I'm channeling Abraham Lincoln and he wants to give votes to women, that kind of thing. And it's them sort of using these kind of almost like kind of other way round backward systems to try and push something that often is very difficult for people to understand or for people to take in immediately. Um, especially if kind of it's not enough for you to just say everything is terrible and Trump is awful and that kind of thing. It's more showing a collective and especially with the Trump kind of doing massive pentagrams in the middle of Washington Square Park. It shows the appearance of a community that is not dealing with this as well. And you end up building this kind of collective strength in that way, as much in the same way that kind of traditional pagan practices would be about connecting to other people across the world. We ended up kind of having this conversation. I don't know how much we could say it's, it's changed quite a lot, I think, for us from when we started it, because we kind of started noticing these things. And now it has turned into this actually again that finding alternative sites for knowledge around things and not dismissing these systems as like not logical or irrational yeah i don't want to go too far down the that, yeah, that's rationality fine. chain because <laughs> we did that last night no but, but i think it's it, like the whole idea like <laughs> the, the kind of the will of technology i guess is to make things as rational and knowable yeah. as possible so when you create technology you try to understand the world through technology it's to try and make it as known as possible but in the process, there is this kind of almost trade-off of, okay, so for you to be able to talk to people across sort of, not universes, across the world, you have to trade off a little bit of something else and you might be closed down something else. And it's not a case of, I don't know, I guess with kind of traditional science where the idea of kind of empirical knowledge and truth as we know, I'm doing air quotes, by the way, is the idea of us being able to know everything. And I think that's one of the things that I found quite intriguing, particularly around data and algorithmic use, is the idea that, oh, if a machine did it and it's been go through a machinic system, then it must be right, it must be true, it must be like something that we know now. It's just another way of putting more things out that we have to question. People don't question them because they come from machines and they come from things that we think are logical but actually are spitting out very illogical, weird things. I think also there's something to be said for the fact that whether it's used, we, we've been talking so far about magic and the supernatural being used critically, either in you know cynically by marketing or or by artists as a form of kind of activism. But actually, there's something to be said for the fact that the world is somewhat magical mm. now, and technology has made the world somewhat magical. Yeah, you know, Skype is a, a three and a half thousand year aspiration to be mm. able to project yourself at a great distance. You know, that is a has been something that humans through scientific and long before scientific magical culture have been aspiring to for a long time we can now as we talked about in our alchemy podcast turn lead into gold using particle accelerators these are magical aspirations you know we have companies building cars that can fly it's Mm -hmm. very easy for a narrative of magic and technology to work when technology is actually somewhat magical You're listening to Thought Starters with Natalie Kane and Tobias Revel, the researchers and curators behind Haunted Machines. When 
we get asked quite a lot, like, do you hate all technology and think technology is bad? And of course it's not. Like, technology is brilliant. It's the reason why we kind of live to a normal age rather than 40. Mm. But it is, I guess it's that kind of who controls the narrative maybe is more the question. I don't know. But like, yeah. but as Ingrid Burns, one of our speakers, said in the very first Haunted Machines conference, like, who wants to live without magic? Like, technology can do amazing things. And, like, I like the fact that I can Skype people that across the other side of the world. And it is literally like transportation, like, mm-hmm. ridiculous. But there is, I think it's more to do with how maybe the people who can control those processes use magic as a diversionary tactic to what's really going on, I don't know. But Talk about technology now, we use that word. We imagine gadgets, like we, mm. that's now inseparable since the personal computer. The word technology is inseparable from gadgets, whereas historically technology just means processes, which is why we refer to machines rather than technology because there's something in machines that sort of engenders a notion that you can take it apart and examine the individual pieces, whereas technology is just a series of black boxes that you can't understand. And also realising increasingly that those black boxes that are technology, phones, smart devices, laptops, are not in and of themselves the technology, it's the structures they connect to, the platforms, the infrastructure, Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever. Our technologies are not devices or gadgets, they are prediction algorithms that can move supply chains yeah, I mean, and it, that's what a technology is now I mean an example of that again is we kind of you said it was that last night was the um, the Amazon Alexa in the Netherlands they don't have it yet so they don't have the Amazon Alexa obviously we're quite used to being, being e- Echo, Echo sorry. Alexa's the uh, voice operators oh, never um, tell uh, the Amazon Echo is a device that obviously we've all been used to being aggressively marketed all the time not just on Amazon's platform but on buses and bus stops and everything else but what it is essentially is just a portal into Amazon's world and the ability for you to become dependent on it in that way. So yes, you can turn your lights off and yes, you can do certain things, but actually what it's doing is training you to only see Amazon as a place where you get stuff from. And as Tobias mentioned yesterday, I mean, Amazon is amazing. You can get an HDMI cable in like a, an hour, but it's more the idea of what it does to you in the very domestic and personal space for you to bring that in. Like what happens when you bring other people's computers into your house, which is the kind of the quote has been willed out many times in the last few years because it does make you think like we're so used to technology being and the systems being either kind of in terms of gadgets and they're kind of we can tell where the wires go in and where they come out and actually where it connects to the internet and then the internet is this thing on the other side of the wall that connects you to the world but I guess with the Amazon the thing I do find quite unnerving is the kind of more the way that it's expected to become a member of your family or a member of your kind of your daily interactions with it and we've got a, a friend called Scott Smith who spoke at Haunted Machines, and he mentioned to me that the family next door to him have an Alexa, and they hear these people shouting, it's Alexa with the, the young child, and the young child talks to the Alexa like it's a person. But also Scott and Susan, who live next door, could shout very easily, Alexa, turn off the lights to next door, because it, it has those like 22 different microphones which enable you to have that kind of interaction with your neighbour, which is just not a normal thing. It does make all these weird, complicated behaviours and different responses. And I guess what we're kind of butting up against a lot of the time is how we respond and how we create like systems to anticipate what the next thing's going to be. Or how do we have to start changing our behaviours and understanding how our behaviours are going to change around the introduction of these technologies just so that we can see them a bit better. Or as Tobias says, kind of acknowledgements being a wider system than just a gadget. Yeah, and you can you can see how... <laughs> You know, the Amazon Echo and things like that, and we can't single that one out because there's dozens of these things now. And even phones are sort of supernatural and supernatural envoys. You know, the sort of the concept of the supernatural comes from this idea that 
again, in sort of Christian rational science, humankind has dominion over the natural world, but then above humankind is the supernatural world, mm. which we, we don't have right or access to, but occasionally will come and visit us through spirit mediums or hauntings. And it, equally, we can't comprehend, see or understand or cognate the superstructure of Facebook, Amazon, mm. Google, any of these massive prediction algorithms with supply chains attached. But they occasionally send an envoy into the world mm. in the form of targeted advertising or a pop-up or a device that now sits in your home and talks to you through a disembodied voice. Yeah. And when we as humans, you know, it's, it's a little uh, it's a little cliched now to bring Marshall McLuhan up, but, you know, in his sort of thing of we always go into the future in the rearview window when we have to tell stories about why this hockey puck on the kitchen counter is talking to us, we'll say, oh, well, you know, I've seen ghost stories that... That connects. That makes sense to me now. That's a story that I can use to explain this thing. Since Haunted Machines and since the kind of festival and now what we're into, certainly in my practice and my research, I'm looking increasingly at the idea of machine irrationality, which, well, so the, so the idea that we expect machines still to behave in an industrial way. Something goes in, a process happens and something comes out. You know, if you look at most of the objects in your kitchen, you put stuff in the fridge, it gets cold. You put bread in the toaster, you get toast. You put water in the kettle, you get hotter water. Those are industrial linear processes. And we still think of machines generally in, in the sort of mental model of what machine does for us as an extension of human quality of life as being industrial. We put something in and we get something better or something we desire out the other side. The problem comes and a lot of the alienation and confusion comes when as uh, mentioned earlier the machines are just prediction algorithms with supply chains attached when it's the machine doesn't exist in a discrete time and space it can give you media music film anytime anywhere in a completely atomized non-authorial um, non-object way that seems personal seems customized and is you know as mentioned earlier is just an ambassador from a supernatural world and not in fact an industrial machine in any way at all that you have any control over and i think the despatializing of machines the fact that they you know my phone that sat next to me now on the table is here physically but in spirit somewhat is in a service center in california it's connected to the nearest three cell towers as well as the nearest three gps satellites it probably has two dozen different services companies organizations institutions currently pinging it for information um, who have their own version of it and its various profiles, the individual apps have their own version of what the phone is and what it does. It's not a discrete industrial object anymore. It's a presence that exists in, in a huge amount of ways. And when these things do things seemingly on their own or change or demand new types of interaction, that's when our mental model of, oh, aren't all machines just for me and I put something in and get something better out starts to destroy itself. And again, we get back to this problem of reality not matching expectations and people going, well, uh, magic then or haunting then, because that's the only thing in human culture that can explain that type of interaction and behavior is the supernatural. I mean, I guess the point, and this is broader than haunted machines, this is about any sort of critical practice is, you know, who gives a shit? <laughs> like, like, you know, we're sitting here in this box. We've both got jobs that allow us to come out here and be an hour or two late. You know, we're recording a podcast. We're having a really rigorous intellectual discussion, as we love doing. So, so what? You know, again, going back to people who are just sort of, you know, struggling to get to work on time or thinking about dealing with their debt or, or you know, and to them, 
to a lot of people and to myself and you included, technology is amazing and it you know allows me to order the aforementioned HDMI cable in an hour. I can stay in touch with my brother in Australia. Like these are great things. There are critical problems with them beyond a sort of intellectual land party that we're having now. <laughs> like who like what does what does a project like Haunted Machines offer the world in terms of real social or political change? Yeah. Is my question for you, Natalie. No, I guess that's a question for us on a longer term basis. But I don't know. I think it's because it's it's always informed the work that we do. Like Tobias is an educator and he teaches design. And like you are training in some ways the next generation of designers who are going to go and make stuff. Um, and that you know, it's a, a small amount of people, but it's still going to have an impact. It's an increasingly and large amount of people. Actually. Yeah, it's very large. There we go. It's a large <laughs> amount of people with like forty people in your class, or whatever. And I guess maybe I need. To, I feel there's a responsibility for me to, as a, someone who works in a museum, which has a large public audience, to take the thinking that we think about and try and find a way of using it. But I think the most important thing that we've built around haunted machines as a community that that's the thing that I always find really yeah. really great about it is that we've over the last three years pulled together all of these amazing people and artists and engineers and designers and thinkers to think about this stuff with us. And I think that for me, things like Haunted Machines or any project which interrogates stuff, building a group of people who would then go out and talk about in the world, not like missionaries, that sounds mental, but like the ability to be able to build something around something. But that's the question, isn't it? And that's something that operationally is more and more challenged by the way that funding for these types of things works is, is it okay to just do a critical intellectual discussion about technology in the form of haunted machines at impact, you know, for five days to bring some great people who have that time and that privilege together for the sake of having that conversation in the community. And then how does it then go out into the world? And, and you know, this is my certainly my pressing concern is that there is an urgency to do real things now. We're not, again, we're not in the age of inevitable social democratic progress where everything will get better for people all the time. We are in a crushing age of depression and like depression both as a crisis of mental health issues but also just like a cultural nihilism that's going on at the moment where you know we're just eating ourselves with repeated Avengers movies and Taylor Swift albums about the 80s like it's civilization collapsing to be quite dramatic so how can you do real social and political change through a project that just discusses how weird Facebook is. But I think I think the role that, we, that I don't know, that I, again, trying to be optimistic and putting things, it's like, we've built a community now, we've built a kind of people who are talking about this. Now it's time to take it to people who aren't having this conversation or perhaps like finding ways of using our own, the things that we found to have better informed conversations with people. Like when I spoke at a web conference like last Friday and it was, people had no idea what I was talking about half time, which was fine. But people ask really good questions at the end. They were like, okay, so this is a new thing for us. And I think sometimes I do take for granted the fact that I have this conversation with people all the time, that when you do go and talk to UX and UI designers about their stuff not being magic, and they've been told the whole time that it is magic and they are doing magic, what that does to them, you have to kind of find a way of pulling that in in a way that's more constructive than you just saying everything's terrible. Yeah, but again, I don't. Uh, even as an educator, I'm concerned that sort of trickle down criticality isn't isn't yeah, really yeah. isn't really great and isn't really vital enough because it's a bit like whitewashing the stuff you do anyway. I mean, you know, it's I come from a, a trained and, and practice critical design. You know, it's a critically approaching design. And at a, an event the other evening, 
you know, we had this discussion about, well, this was a project that started before the dot-com crash, before 9-11, before the 2008 financial crisis, when it was about questioning how we could improve the sort of critical quality of design to make life better for people and stay away from doing bad stuff, basically. And there was an agreement from the panel and, and myself that that had failed because design now just does bad stuff and people still design weapons and drones and they still are creating very exploitative services. You know, we still have a crisis of employment where, you know, students 10 years ago when I was graduating might expect to intern for a year and then get a job. They're now just looking at perhaps never being fully employed. These things have been design choices that were made. So critical design failed as a project and its model of how it would work would be trickle-down. You would teach people to be critical in their practice as students, as professionals, and then they would just do better. They would do better, more humane work. They would become more human-centered, which is in itself selfish because humans aren't a problem that needs to be solved. So, you know, and it, it failed. So I'm, I'm desperate to see... Is there another way, a more direct action way for criticality? So this is my question. Is like, what? So do we need to just go out and make more technology to kind of yeah. nudge away from the bad technology? And again, we were talking about it yesterday. It's not enough just to point at stuff and go, oh, that's bad. That's yeah, no, I, I agree. And because I, people I, are like, I know. You know, I know. Everything's bad. Everything's weird. It's confusing. And that's why I keep mm. talking about things as magic. And then, but no one's actually saying, but what, we could do this instead. Mm. Instead of having autonomous cars, we could just not have cars. We yeah. could have a much better model of reality. No one's presenting that. No one's come up with that. Yeah. We just go to conferences and go, oh, that's bad and weird, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. I to think there's, there's, there's definitely like a, I don't know what you call it, like the critics angst or the like, like, actually, you're right, like it's not enough. And I remember actually Tobias kind of talking to me about my own talks where it literally is a case of, I would say that's bad and that's weird, this is terrible. But now I've started to think, actually, I can't just, it's not providing solutions. It's just providing another way of thinking about something that isn't just everything is terrible. I think we need better dreams of machines like, you know are you talking about the technological sublime device? i'm talking a little bit about technological sublime like okay. embrace Sorry. the mag <laughs> embrace the magic in technology embrace the wonder of technology and do something really exciting and utopian with it like it's all right to be a utopian and i think critic critical <laughs> practice is so yeah you're doing it now it's like so no, nervous about utopia. It's, it's because i i struggle with with <laughs> the idea of utopia being abstracted from what utopia ever was which is it was like again it, 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 there's too much nuance in the world like, okay just have positive dreams you can people. be positive but i think using utopia is a wrong that's a wrong language i think it's i think it's a wrong way to think about it because one utopia already has constructions of what we'll think about what utopia is i think it's okay for you to provide alternate sites of thinking about things and knowledge but i don't think being utopian is the best method to do that. This is why people hate critics because it's all no, about nuance. No, I'm saying that you can, be, you can, you can be, you can be positive. I'm saying you can be positive and you can find other yeah. best ways of doing stuff. But using utopian as kind of ideas as a way of doing that, I find I don't know, problematic. <laughs> I'm going to end with that. This you're, is you're, you're sort of defeating your own argument. No, I know like. it's awful, but I think it's, I think it's because That's like, really like, problematic. No, but I've definitely, I've definitely got this problem where. It's good to question everything. It's good to interrogate everything. But there's a point where it's like, I do want to go off and do stuff and get things I was, done. I was but... talking to a colleague the other day. who and we, He's an academic as well, an educator. And he was saying how hard it is. We've got to do all this stuff and, and do all this critique and stuff. And we're setting up a new organization within my organization. And um, I was saying, wouldn't you just do a lot more if someone said, here, here's loads of space and opportunity. Go build cool stuff. You know, and that's the kind of model that made Silicon Valley successful. But critical practice is so kind of, well, we don't want to do that. That's problematic. We don't want to upset people. Sometimes I think at the moment we're just going to have to upset a lot of people. 
and just go all in. Yeah, I guess, uh, I don't know, it, with the museum, it's different to a critical institution. We are a critical institution in some ways, but we're not also. We're like, we just, we're like, the rapid response collection that I work with is just putting things out and going, what do you think about that? This is weird. Like, it's not kind of going weird. It's more like getting people to question the role of why that's even put in the museum, because people have an idea of what a museum is. And if you put things in that tell you a different story of design, that it's not just this thing is beautiful, this thing was a great functional object. It's kind of going, okay, so this was part of a particular political time or this spurred a particular change of how we think about design in the world. I find that kind of method quite useful because it feels very directed by people. It's not us saying, you need to think this, this is terrible or the world is a horrible place. It's more, we've put this here because we want you to, to have more control about how you're talking about things and how you see design being. But I don't know. Seize the means of cultural production. <laughs> That's what I reckon. Okay, Screw so. it. <laughs> That was Natalie Kane and Tobias Revel of Haunted Machines. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a DNN Co. project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Claire Urban, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at White City Place or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com and subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating or write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. Thought Starters.